VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Little bit of a gray, bit of a dreary morning here in the city of St. John's, but today is the 18th consecutive day in the city where the temperatures have been 8 degrees or higher. That's the all time record for consecutive days of those temperatures in the city. Okay. As you heard Brian Medora mentioned, Jay, six wins away from clinching the playoff spot this year. Gosman, one of their aces, was really on top of his game last night. Ten strikeouts gives him 232. That's his career high in strikeouts. It's good to lead the American League. And overall, Major League Baseball, he's second in strikeouts behind only Spencer Strider, the Atlanta Braves ace, and he's got 270. Uh, good luck to Team Guju as they kick off this year's curling season. They're in Cornwall, Ontario this weekend for the Shorty Jenkins Classic. So go get him, Guju. And someone sent me an email saying, what's this about Maggie Connors? Heard my conversation with Dr. Sean Connors, her father, yesterday. Well, the story is, I'm sure maybe you know by now, Maggie Connors, who was a graduate of Princeton University, no less, she played for Team Canada in the under-18s. She was drafted six, uh, 62nd overall by Toronto in the Professional Women's Hockey League draft over the weekend. There was 90 players drafted, of course, including Maggie. Okay, let's keep going. A couple of things, you know, regulations are important for protection of the environment and all sorts of issues. But at some point, there is, I think, legitimate questions to be asked about the amount of red tape, the levels of bureaucracy, the time it takes to get things done. So we've seen the story come from the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation about forecasted need for housing here in this province. A banner year is 25 housing starts. They're talking about 10,000 a year for the next six years. So a few things. You know, it's fine for the government to take away the 5% GST to build affordable units, even though that's a floating target. You know, what is actually affordable here for people? It remains to be seen what the province is going to do with the other 10% of provincial sales tax. It remains to be seen where the tradespeople are going to come from to try to somehow get near that 10,000 units. But big on top of that is just how long it takes to build anything. You know, it's one thing for environmental assessments for wind projects and offshore oil and mining expansions and whatever the case may be. But when you have accredited builders with solid track records, it really is unnecessary, in my opinion, to take a couple of years from, yes, we're going to build here, yes, we got the land, all the way through inspections and permits and licenses and all the rest of it. So it's fine to have federal housing accelerator funds. It's fine for the province to be on board and acknowledge the housing issues. It's fine for GST to be removed. But if it takes as long as it takes, that really does throw cold water on the appetite, and it also really puts a real time lag in place for while we try to settle, trying to get a place for people to live. So bureaucracy, it's a big deal. It's very much akin to stories where there's lots of money out there from the federal government about municipalities and trying to be more climate resilient. Wildfires, floods, and you've seen the story where we're about a year post Fiona here in this province. But the problem there is also very similar. It's cumbersome, it's tedious, of course it's data-driven, but just think about the numbers of municipalities that might have a part-time clerk or a full-time clerk to come up with all the data and all the inputs to understand the application process and then
And then the time between, yes, we need to do something in Harbour, Maine, or in Burnt Islands, or in Port of Basque, or in Stephenville, or in Deer Lake, or wherever, if we don't have the capacity to get down to the brass tacks and the access to the federal funds, it just becomes another layer of bureaucracy and red tape, which makes things far too difficult. Think about it. So if we have some of these climate-related weather events, adverse weather events, and there's backstop monies coming from the federal government inside their disaster management portfolio, been in place since 1970, $8 billion have gone out the door, 73% of that in the last 10 years. So on one hand, they'll backstop with the federal assistance dollars, but then they make it very difficult for especially smaller municipalities to come up with filling out the required paperwork, and yes, coming up with the required data to be able to uh, be eligible for these funds, but it's too difficult, it's too cumbersome, and it takes too long. So again, in the world of regulations, we've got to be on the right side. Look, you can't throw caution to the wind and simply say, okay, do whatever you want, but that's not the questions being asked. The questions are, are these things actually required at the length and the breadth that they currently are in place. Also, you know, regulations are being worked out now about the potential for offshore wind, nearshore wind. So there's been amendments proposed through Bill uh, C-49 to amend the offshore courts between Canada and Nova Scotia and Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador, which would allow the regulator, the CNLOPB, to be part of the oversight for the potential for offshore wind projects. We're told by the minister responsible here, Andrew Parsons, that they, the government and Hydro have been approached many, many times with proposals for offshore wind. So while we look for backup power or potentially a business model that would see power sold to whoever, wherever. That's not my concern at this moment in time. But it's a bit of a strange set of circumstances on the federal level on this front. You would think that this would be very much in line with all the major parties' understanding of and the need for upgrade of transmission and, yes, to satisfy demand for electricity. But curiously, the Conservatives were opposed. Now, they use the pretty standard line. They say that it's another step in a long line of liberal laws and policies since 2015 that appears destined to drive investment out of Canada with more uncertainty, red tape, and extended and costly timelines. We haven't even got down to cost and timelines at this moment in time. We're trying to put forward a bill, or the bill is being put forward to try to add amendments to the accords, which has to happen before any of these projects could possibly take place. There are zero offshore wind projects in Canada at this moment in time. The one that's been proposed uh, in Halifax, a $1 billion wind farm, wind farm right off the eastern shore of the province of Nova Scotia. So, odd. Now, some Conservative MPs in Atlantic Canada, notably New Brunswick Conservative MP Jake Stewart, he says Conservatives support the development of offshore wind and renewables in Atlantic Canada. So which one is it? So we'll see the political theatre unfold here stands to reason that there will at some point in time be offshore wind projects. The thirst for the demand for electricity is obviously very real and forecasted to be even more extraordinary in years to come. So maybe just maybe, you know, there will be all of these, uh, you know, here's a squirrel. Don't look at this. Don't look at that. Don't be worried about the housing crisis, the health care crisis and all the rest of it. Oh, look at the bad conservatives on wind. Let's just, you know, try to get out of our own way here a little bit. Uh, There is no real massive victory here for any party, if all of a sudden we see uh, alternative forms of energy come to pass, it's good for Canadians, right? It simply is. So offshore wind, I would imagine that's going to happen sooner than later, but it's being bandied about once again. All right, talk about a tough sell. The premiers in Alberta trying to lure or to woo people to move to the province. And yes, it is a tough sell. So it's one thing to uh, tug on the emotional heartstrings for expats to say, okay, maybe it is time to move home. 
Maybe there is an opportunity here for me. But emotions also have to be dovetailed with economic opportunity. Now, the Premier says we're going to need some 80,000 additional workers over the course of the next decade, and pointing to, to some of the opportunities they may have. You know, talking about the building trades, and yes, if you're a tradesperson in Alberta, please move home. Talk about green energy. But once again, that really does feel like the, the government is really all in in these wind, hydrogen, ammonia plays. It might be good, it might be bad, but the concerns in the local areas, notably on the Port of Port Peninsula, are right there in front of us. There may indeed be opportunities, further opportunities, in the offshore. So while we had the climate protests last week, the other side of that ledger is the industry itself. So Equinor, who absolutely sucked all the oxygen out of the room at the most recent Energy NL conference when they shelved Beta Nord for up to three years, they're singing a much different tune here lately. This comes from an article based on conversations had at the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary. The head of Canadian operations said that they are very much looking forward to expat, uh, continue drilling out of Beta Nord and to bring that production capacity to, re to reality. So which is it? You know, they have talked about the fact that the cost has exploded to about $16 billion, much higher than was initially anticipated, even though their business model says break even at $35 a barrel, and we're nudging up around $100 now. So what they're trying to do is apparently sell some of their equity stake. They've got a 60% stake at Beta Nord. Uh, BP PLC owns 40%. So they're talking very, very bullishly and optimistically about Beta Nord. One of the confusing parts of the story is the potential for how many barrels are out there. So from 500 million to 900 million, and then we've heard as much as 3 billion barrels and maybe even more. And Beta Nord is not just one hole on the sea floor. There's a variety of uh, holes out there. Pardon me, there's a variety of areas that have been explored. So the subsea tieback will be a big part of this, and there could be extraordinary copious amounts of oil. Probably the biggest find in the country. So on one hand, they're shelving it, talking about the economic uncertainties. And on the other hand, just months later, out in Calgary at the World Petroleum Congress saying, we're going to build it. Basically saying, we're going to build it. You want to take it on? We can do exactly that. Uh, what's that scribble right there? Oh, yeah. And I mean, have people want to move home here? You know, it's just another, you know, tie it back once again to the housing issue. Because that's going to be an obvious concern when people are considering where they're going to go. It's a job what the taxes look like, the cost and the ease of getting in and out of here, and yes, whether or not there's a house available, and at what price. Also, it's access to health care. Now, this promise is not unique. There's an issue right across the country. I heard Ben Murphy speaking with the Vet Coffee, the president of the Registered Nurses Union this morning, about their ongoing vacancies, concerns with recruitment and retention, the potential rift on the floor or on the ward when you have all the agency nurses that are being paid more, sometimes double plus, and now add to it another wrinkle regarding family doctors. I don't really know what the exact number is here in this province of folks who do not have a family doctor. We've seen 125,000, 136,000. There's a disparity between what the province says and what the NLMA says, but this is coming in 2027. This is word coming from the College of Family Physicians of Canada and their Division of Academic Family Medicine. What's being proposed and what's going to happen is that they're going to add an additional year of residency for family doctors, moving it from two to three. 
there will be some questions. And I'm not qualified to say whether or not it's needed, but even some of the doctors interviewed are wondering whether or not that's going to make it less attractive to be a family doctor. Now, there's all kinds of reasons they're pointing to as to why they're ad- adding your residency. Enough time to learn additional core skills, elder care, new technologies, including artificial intelligence, virtual care, the explosion in mental health and addictions concerns. So, yeah, I'm sure this is a very, you know, it's me- family medicine would be, I would imagine, a very exciting opportunity given the breadth and scope of the practice, dealing with all of those various issues that will come into your clinic. They also need help, apparently, being able to establish a clinic and the administrative support to operate a clinic. So Canada has one of the lowest residency terms in the world. Compared to other places like we've been trying to recruit, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland, there's a five-year family medicine training after you get your medical degree. So... Whether or not it's absolutely required, I think some of the worry will be whether or not doctors, graduates of medical school say, well, another year residency to be a family doctor, and we all see the comments and the quotes coming from family doctors and just how flooded they are and how difficult it is to operate as a subcontractor practice. Then add to it, there's only 17 medical schools in the country. You know, we've got the ongoing concern of Canadian-born doctors who trained elsewhere but cannot get a residency position in the country. We have got to figure that out. And when we talk expanding, you know, offerings at post-secondary institutions, including medical schools, there has been 10 additional seats added to Munns Medical School. But you just wonder what all of these 17 medical schools, which seems like a very low number for the country, whether or not their keen focus should be on, yes, training people up who want to be part of the tech sector, and tech is everything, but yes, expanding the number of seats offered to Canadians and international students in medical schools, and yes, to figure out Canadian-born, foreign-trained doctors to be able to get a residency here in the country. There seems to me, none of this is simple, but it seems that we're kind of dragging our feet here a little bit. While 6 million Canadians don't have a family doctor, does this further complicated or is this actually required because yes Canada may have the shortest residency requirement for family doctors amongst the slowest in the world and yes it might be five years in Australia New Zealand and uh, Ireland but what do you think of that that's a new wrinkle that has uh, recently come to pass all right let's see uh, we're on Twitter there's plenty of other things we can talk about and as you know tell me some good news we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. When we come back, let's kick it off. Have a great show. We're going to talk to a fellow who wants to respond to Dr. Sean Connor's uh, comments yesterday about well-being week, uh, quality of care, education, what have you. We're also going to talk to Pam. She's got a question about roads. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do And uh, also thank you to your producer there who uh, I was uh, talking to him at the end of the show last uh, day, and he called me back this morning, which I really appreciate the fact that your station uh, reaches out to people like that. Um, so I just uh, was listening to Dr. Sean Connors yesterday talking about health and uh, I guess his message about you know trying to prevent heart attacks before they happen. And he made reference in his uh, talking, really, uh, which directly relate to a parable in healthcare, uh, which is kind of like upstream, downstream kind of thinking. And for your listeners, basically the the story in this parable talks about a town on a, a river that uh, somebody notices some people floating downstream who are drowning. And of course, the townspeople go out and rescue them and so on. And each year, the townspeople notice more and more people are in that river and they're drowning. And so they build more and more elaborate facilities to take care of the drowning victims more lifeguards, more hospitals right at the site, etc. They get really good at rescuing the drowning people until 
somebody finally asked the question, of course, you know, why are they in the river in the first place? And it's time for us to look kind of upstream at why they're getting there. And he referenced the idea of, you know, uh, he referred to it like a burning building. It's no good to have good firefighting. Why is the building on fire? The same kind of reference as this upstream, downstream kind of thinking. So he said yesterday that um, all of us have, I guess, a level of responsibility for looking after our own health. You know, we we make choices about uh, the things we do, and that is definitely true. And I would also want to add to, uh, I guess, the things he said there by saying uh, people also need to have an understanding of how to do that. You know, how what strategies can I use to make myself more healthy? And we also have to have government programs, of course, in place uh, to intervene when circumstances are beyond your control. Like, for example, if somebody was born into uh, poverty, you know, they may need assistance with uh, housing and food and so on, which the government is there. And we have social programs that, uh, fortunately, in Canada can help help get us through that. Um, Patty, uh, we all know the here, stats here uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador about our unhealthy sort of lifestyle stats. You know, people are still smoking. We eat a lot of unhealthy foods and uh, we're not really exercising to the levels we need and so on. And as a result, we have lots of uh, chronic disease. And uh, I just want to, I guess, to chime in to say or to put this out there and have a discussion on how do we change this. And in my mind, I guess one of the biggest avenues has to be in our schools. Uh, it's where we get kids for a long time in their life and have an impact on what they know. And, but we really have to really rethink the entire school day and what we want students to learn as they go through K to 12. Like, because right now, what we've been doing, if the results are still bad, we, we obviously need change here. You know, if if the results are we still have this much chronic disease and still have these bad habits, then the people out there are, are obviously not educated in the way we need them to be, uh, or else maybe we would see uh, declines in these areas. I mean, you know, preventative medicine is a tricky piece of business, is it? Because the healthcare system here is very much reactive. So I guess yeah. that's the core thought of this well-being week is to talk about strategies to reduce the interactions that we have with the healthcare system. I don't know how beneficial it's going to be in the long run, but it's a worthy effort, I think. Well, I mean, we know every person, I think, uh, can come to grips with the idea that everybody knows you need – uh, physical activity. You need healthy eating. Uh, you need to have, you know, those things in your day. And, you know, sometimes we beat around the bush and, and we, we don't get to it. But we all do sort of deeply understand that I should be doing this. Yet in the school system and so on, most of the subject areas that talked about physical activity, about nutrition, about body systems, and so on, they're fairly low on the totem pole. Like, we've created a hierarchy of learning where we have certain subjects are highly valued and highly touted, and others are like, well, if you can fit them in, great, but if you don't, it's it's really not that important. If, if I make you smart, I guess eventually you will come around to the idea that you need to look after your health. But you know, like there should be more opportunities in the school day, as far as I'm concerned, uh, like for students to learn other skills. Like how do you how do you prepare a healthy meal? I mean, you know, out of uh, rudimentary kind of means, you can make uh, very healthy food dishes at a fairly low cost using like uh, different lentils and vegetables and so on, which is quite good for you, and it's not going to burst the bank. And to talk to students about the nutrition values of different things, like you know. Uh, I guess, uh, in their foods. 
uh, I think these activity sessions should also be led by teachers and so on as part of the school day. And in many schools in the world, as I'm sure you're aware, there are opportunities sometimes for one grade level, you might say, to cook for the other and to help be in on, you know, preparing some of the food under direct, you know, supervision of of people and so on. And uh, I would advocate that courses like the home economics, uh, nutrition courses and so on, they should have a bit more uh, weight in the school system because ultimately when we all get out of the the school and go on our own, that's one of the skills we need to, to know how to do. I really don't know what's in the home ec curriculum, to be honest, in high school. As far as my understanding goes, there is a fair bit about healthy eating and preparation and using, you know, different ingredients as opposed to maybe some of the more traditional Newfoundland and Labrador approaches to it. I guess I could find out and have a look. It's generally not that hard to come up with the curriculum. You know, it's kind of difficult to read when you're not a teacher, though, because it yeah. talks about outcomes as opposed to, you know, black and white. Here's what we're doing this term, that term, the following term. It's all about outcomes. So I'm still trying to digest exactly how to read curriculum guides well the issue there though too is it it may not fit in your timetable you know so for example while you can look at the newfoundland curriculum and see that there is a course in nutrition or there is a course in you know home economics or something like that devoted to a grade level it may never make it to a student's timetable because you know if you are taking uh, for example subject you know one two three four that may not give you the opportunity to take like a physical education class or a healthy um, eating kind of a nutrition course or something like that. Yeah. So even though it's there, you might go through the school system and never do it. You know what I mean? And I'm sure there are people out there who will say, like, we give them opportunities. You know, we have a recess break, a lunch break, so kids could be active then. But unfortunately, a lot of kids in, in today's world, I think, are on their phones. They're, they're, and they need to have things like washroom break. They need to, you know, uh, have chatting time with their friends and all those things which are critical. So we have to, I, I think, rethink the school day a little bit to make sure that the all teachers have opportunity to engage with their students to have these discussions and of course that means that the uh, the school board and the people who are implementing curriculum and so on need to have opportunities to uh, train teachers uh, to talk or at least thread these things through their their classes and you know it's interesting there right now I, I challenge you right now to phone the NLESD and ask them like who's responsible for physical and health education in this province and I think I'll just save you the time and say there is nobody you know there's nobody directly responsible for curriculum in this area despite the fact that we have one of the highest levels of chronic disease in this province you know and when I look at the, the government itself, there is a person I know up there who's uh, involved with, uh, I guess, de designing curriculum, who's absolutely brilliant in these, these areas, and you know she's a wonderful advocate for health and physical activity. But I don't know how much, if you're in curriculum design, she actually gets to work directly with teachers, and I mean all teachers, not just physical educators, for example, but uh, on you know different issues around like things like vaping, drugs, sexual health, mental health. Like these, these are issues that a lot of teachers in the classroom have very little to no training in how to talk to students about it. Yet we know out there in our world, this is happening every day with our kids. You know, they're getting involved with drugs or vaping or trying things and they don't have the right information delivered to them. 
no disagreement w from me. We might be asking a little bit too much of some teachers already. How this gets factored in, I'm not. I, I don't dispute your point. I think you're spot on. Yeah. You know, some of the the core academics that we've relied on over the years, some of that, of course, helpful critical thinking and you know to understand the world and some of the implications it might have for your professional career, but actual societal issues maybe don't get the attention they do because those real life things about understanding vaping and drugs and sex and your overall health and how to eat properly, how to manage your money, to learn some first aid, those types of things that might make a meaningful difference as opposed to the uh, Pythagorean theorem. Now, it's not to say that's not important to learn, but how do yeah, we focus? It's all, it's all important, well, like sure. you say, and I, and I think it's it, what we had to be careful here is the idea like, I don't want it to, to sound like uh, this is something to add to a teacher's plate. I was a teacher for many years, mm -hmm. and I understand how busy the teaching life is. And it's not about adding to what currently exists. It's actually about revamping what cur currently exists so that, for example, the, the school day might have some structure whereby a teacher has uh, time. Maybe, maybe we do a couple of lists pieces in certain subject areas or whatever it has time to um, engage or, you know, like take the students out for a walk to do your biology uh, piece out in the outdoors or something, you know, like where we give teachers some strategies that they can add into their lessons or whatever in their day. I, I certainly understand the teacher's life is beyond busy and, and extends far beyond the teaching day. and And that's why I think like this is a systemic change here. I mean, there are countries in the, wor in the world that are doing equally well on, uh, you know, when you look at the uh, program for assessment, for, like the program for international student assessment, there are countries in the world who have things like a big attention to healthy uh, lifestyles in their, in their school day, and they're still performing as well as Canadian students. Like Canadian students are doing very well in some of these assessments, but how is it that those schools are managing to also address student health and well-being a little bit better, and we can learn some lessons. I think by studying those uh, those things. And it, it, right now we're we're so busy. Like uh, for example, there's a program years ago that was developed uh, by the Joint Consortium for School Health, and it uh, it has a thing called Comprehensive School Health, which really looks at all the pillars that affect a student's health overall. And this has been around for years. And there's actually somebody at the school board right now who is totally responsible for Comprehensive School Health. I don't have any idea whether that person has any training in healthcare. Certainly, in my uh, I guess time and teaching and so on like that. I can't remember this person from the healthcare circles, but they might be totally trained. I certainly hope they are because that portfolio is huge. And, you know, uh, if, if the school board has somebody there for comprehensive school health, they need to get that off the back burner. That has been around for years and years, and they keep pushing it backwards. And it's like uh, Stephen Covey, who used to talk about uh, highly effective people. Uh, and so on. One of the things he'd say, you know, you can't be too busy driving to forget to buy gas. You can't be too busy learning all of these important subjects to forget to look after your health or else you got the smartest people in the graveyard. You know, it's it's one of these things that we need a systemic change here. And, uh, you know, we need to look at other parts of the world and have people with research-based suggestions like I uh, you know when somebody says we're having a well-being week or we're having a like a, a anti-smoking day or an anti-bullying one day or something does the research tell you that that makes change or does the research say it's all a good idea and everything but it doesn't work 
You know, like we have to make our decisions based on uh, actual fact and, you know, things that have been success successful. Patty, I know that you personally on this show many times advocate for a proactive uh, approach to healthcare, and you're very supportive of all aspects of this. I've heard you talking many times uh, uh, supporting like mental health uh, causes, physical health causes, etc. And I applaud you for that. And I had to put my voice out to tell people, you know, keep looking upstream. Uh, all of us here have a responsibility while our kids are in school and so on to make sure that they have uh, the best chance to be healthy, productive um, citizens and so on. And, you know, it's interesting that I, I find it almost disturbing in some regards that some people will go to the streets like and protest the idea that we might talk about, like mention the word about, uh, you know, gay parents or somebody who's transgender. We'll go to the road and go to the bat for that, like as if it's war. And yet we'll stand by and not look at the fact that we as a province need to look at our own personal health and well-being and we'll we'll let that go it, it's almost unimportant yeah i mean you're the person in the hospital i, I right? use this one all the time and i think it does most of these things can be settled and solved or at least a better path forward yeah. inside the k-12 system when polled come election time canadians are thinking about the economy and taxes and criminal justice and health care and the environment and up and down the line if we had education at the top of that pile we do better with the economy and taxes and jobs and health care and criminal justice and the environment it's just sort of a Absolutely. skewed way to think about those things john great chat really appreciate the time thank you so much for having this program love your show and uh, hopefully other people will engage in this conversation and whatever suggestions come forward if they're anti to what i say it doesn't matter because it makes you consider what the other person is saying get it get the discussion going uh, to the listeners out there don't be afraid to call in and raise your voice and and that helps everybody make the right decision anyway have a great day thanks john really appreciate it all right take care okay bye-bye bye-bye good one right there all right uh, line one pam you're on the air uh hi i just wanted to draw your attention to an issue here uh they don't seem to know how to grade the roads properly um mine is graded towards my house and the ocean is on the other side of the road. So very odd. The whole world drains toward the ocean. They are open bodies of water. Um, I'm, I checked out the heavy equipment operator qualifications here, and they don't seem to have a certificate program in the province. I do know that you learn about gravity in grade five. So what happens when they get their positions i'm not sure um the town council here is charged with roads and garbage collection and uh, they seem to be better at taking people's land and building balconies on their land and uh, other things than they are at with grading the roads the garbage collection is all right but very odd uh, place and no rule of law that can be discerned what community are we talking about, Pat? Shoalbrook in Bombay. Okay. So th- what exactly is being done with the grader on the road that provokes this call? What are you seeing? Uh, uh, the, it's, uh, the grading is done uh, slanted toward my house. Oh, I see. Okay. The ocean on the other side of the road, so I've gotten a lot of flooding. I'm underneath a mountain to start with, and there's no drainage. No pipes going out from my uh, my house for a, uh, for some strange reason. 
although there are some to the north and south of me. And uh, I'm getting a lot of flooding. There's a big sinkhole in the uh, in the front yard at the end of the driveway, and I notified the Parks uh, Commission about that, and apparently they don't have jurisdiction. I'm afraid, afraid that the whole area is going to float out to sea, slide out. There's a big sludge in the sinkhole. I keep filling it. And nobody seems to uh, really be concerned. It's quite odd that the option to, you know, the grader does indeed have the ability to influence the angle on the road, obviously, and to angle it away from whether it be a residence or a building or whatever the case. You think that would be the go-to option. Now, we're not talking about serious angles. We're not, you know, not talking about banking like a racetrack. It's very subtle, but, of course, water will follow the lay of the land. And no, no, this is not subtle. This is decidedly classic toward my house. Is that right? Well, that seems to be quite an odd approach to tackling it uh so are they going to try to fix it or are they just shrugging their shoulders uh the last excuse was they didn't have access to a grader which is very strange when that's their mandate to uh, grade the roads quite bizarre so shoalbrook you said right yes okay David, let's see if someone in Shoalbrook can tell us as to uh, what's the rationale between behind not having access to a grader when, of course, there's graders out there aplenty. We'll follow up for you, Pam. Thank you kindly. Appreciate your time. Bye now. Bye bye. All right, very quickly before we get to the break. Uh, so, an emailer says, I want to know why the caller is not putting more onus on parents and their responsibility to teach their kids how to navigate life. I don't think John's intention was to say, well, it doesn't matter what happens at home, because, of course, everything starts at home. A lot of the way people will be as. Uh, children as teenagers as young adults as adults will stem directly from how their parents or their caregivers deal with them and teach them that whether it be the alarm bells that go off in your stomach or respect or self-respect and yes how to navigate life of course home plays a massive role i don't that's not how i heard john's uh conversation because as a former teacher he was focusing in on what he sees what he knows what he thinks we should be doing in school but yes parents are absolutely the linchpin the key to it all let's take a break when we come back darla king is the vp of transformation for this well-being week we'll speak with darla right after this don't go away Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the CEO of Easter Seals. That's Mark Bradbury. Mark, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great, thanks. I just wanted to inform your listeners who've been such great supporters of the Easter Seals Luxury Cabin Lottery, that today is our last day to get a ticket. Today is the final deadline. Remind the folks one more time, what's on the line? Well, we have a beautiful uh, $600,000 cabin on a waterfront lot at Dildo Pound Properties and uh, a whole bunch of other bonus prizes. And the tickets are still only $30. And uh, the deadline is midnight tonight, but we've been doing this for a number of years now and sold out the past three or four. And I can tell you right now, we're not going to make it to to midnight. So it's great news. And the uh, proceeds from this lottery go towards our over 20 meaningful programs and services for persons with disabilities throughout the province. And we're also trying to uh, finish off our uh, phase three of the park. 
which is a outdoor uh, hard court surface area. So we can bring out the wheelchair basketball and the sledge hockey outdoors and archery. But even just as important as that is that we're building a uh, an outbuilding to house our uh, free uh, accessible equipment loan programs that uh, we have to be able to expand on those and properly be able to access the inventory and uh, fix them up and so on and and be able to get some really important uh, pieces of equipment out to families with disabilities across the entire province. So it's great for outreach and out to the rural areas. The the plans for the accessible park are absolutely brilliant for folks who have not seen it. Take it from me. I've had a look. It's really much needed and an absolutely brilliant design. So let's hope that phase three gets satisfied. And at 30 bucks with all the prizes that are on the line, and I don't know if people have gone online to have a look at the Dildo Pond cabin. <laughs> I've got a ticket. So I've already got plans to make a trek out to Dildo Pond. Fingers crossed. Mark, you're doing great work at Easter Seals. Always big supporters here. And folks, the deadline's coming up midnight tonight, but the tickets won't last till then so you know what to do go get them that's right and the 50 50 patty is uh well last year we broke a record at close to seven hundred and thirty thousand dollars, and we're on track right now to, to uh, beat that again so uh everybody loves our 50 50 here just huge opportunities and today's the last day so get your tickets today cabinlottery.ca uh, good luck with it all mark stay in touch Thanks very much, Patty. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. It's Mark Bradbury, the CEO at Easter Seals. Now let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the VP of Transformation at this Wellbeing Week. That's Darla King. Good morning, Darla. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me this morning. Happy to have you on the program. These are kind of new positions that I'm not intimately familiar with what your mandate would be. What's your role include? Yeah, sure. So I can talk a little bit about it. So, um, Patty, I'm a member of the executive team with the new provincial health authority. There's about 13 of us in total. And as you said, each of us have sort of a different role and focus. Some people are more responsible. Some of the VPs are more responsible for clinical operations in a certain geographic area. Others have responsibilities that are provincial in scope. And, of course, we all work together uh, to fulfill our mandate. My role in particular is one of two roles that focus on transformation. So, you know, essentially, I know you've talked lots on the program around the health accord and the calls to action in the health accord that, you know, really are, are trying to make us look outside of the box and change sort of our health outcomes and our health service delivery. So um, I'm one of the two VPs that are really trying to champion these upstream and innovative approaches. And my role in particular is focusing more on the sort of community health, primary health care side, and also on this well-being work where we're trying to sort of increase our action around the social determinants of health. So, you know, it's one thing to talk to the minister's office about, you know, the health accord itself, the calls to action, what the minister's role will be and his senior bureaucrats. But inside the health authority, now we once had a four, a four regional health authority splinter type of approach. How has this seeped into the minds of the leadership between you, the other VP, and just all of the moving parts at the health authority? Because if we get it right on the social determinants front, we're probably going to do better overall. So has it really seeped into the psyche and the culture of the authority? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we have adopted a transformation agenda, really. We believe in the calls to action in the health accord, and uh, we are making those things strategic priorities, right? Because, uh, you know, we agree that there are changes needed, and, uh, you know, we think that these calls to actions will help us uh, get to uh, better health outcomes in, uh, for people in the province, for sure. Um, case in point, we have two VPs that have a um, transformation in their job title, right? But this is strategic priority for us. With the now one health authority, 
How are things going to change? I'm not asking about identifying redundancies and overlaps and the number of people working for the authority, but pragmatically speaking, what will people see and how will we feel what this change means? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there, there's a couple of things. One is in our new org structure, we really are still trying to make sure that we're recognizing local factors and uh, responding to needs on a local level. So you'll know that we have uh, five sort of geographic zones and a chief operating officer who's responsible for work in each of those zones. Uh, and that's to make sure that they're really connected with the local level. But one of the other things is we really do want to have a provincial approach so we want to have, um, you know, standardization where we can. We want to make sure that things are based on best practices and evidence and that people have, um, you know, the ability to um, to have the same kind of services right across the province, you know, where that's feasible, obviously. The different zones, I mean, that's one thing where the four, the standalone four regional health authorities had different folks because there's different needs, different complexities, say, for instance, Labrador, Grenfell Health versus Eastern Health. So when you try to tailor this approach, whether it be regarding social determinants of health or otherwise, is there a pragmatic example you can use with, say, for instance, in Labrador, different than in St. John's? Because the needs are similar, but they're all, albeit they're very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a great question. Uh, we're, we're basically trying to build on our strength from each area. Coincidentally, I actually um, had a visit to Labrador in the last couple of weeks uh, with a few members of the, of the team. And, and you're right, Patty, things are very different into different areas. So uh, one of the things in my area, we'll be looking at family care teams. So we're trying to look at that particular model, look at how it will work best. There is a model for family care teams. But, you know, if you visit, uh, let's say, the main clinic, um, the family care team in Maine is going to have similar services and approach, but it's going to look really different in that community because of the uniquenesses of um, of the social determinants of health in those those facilities. You know, their access to transportation, their access to food, how we can get healthcare providers in and out. So, um, you know, while they might deliver some of the same types of services, how that might be delivered might look a little differently. Help us understand the interaction between different government departments, because sometimes there's a feeling that, you know, we're operating in silos, left hand, right hand, maybe not on the same page. But health has a direct relationship with education and criminal justice and the Department of Environment and infrastructure and climate change and all the rest. Can you help us understand, for instance, let's just say with education, because when we talk social determinants of health, you know, getting off to the right start when you're a young child into your teenage years, this is where we can maybe make a pragmatic difference. But the messaging to me as a 54 year old, is different than it would be for a 12-year-old. Tell us about the interaction with the Department of Education. Yeah, certainly. And actually, uh, that's a really good example. So, you know, in um, within NLHS, we're trying to use a population health approach to this work around the social determinants. And uh, one of the things that means is we're not going to be able to bring about change unless we work with multiple partners across multiple sectors. Like, we know this is a big problem, and there's not going to be any one action that we're going to be able to do independently. So, you know, within NLHS, we have a provincial public health program. We've got lots of expertise around the social determinants of health work. So, education is a, is a very strong partner, actually. Um, so as an example, I think one of your previous callers this morning referenced the uh, Comprehensive School Health Program. And we actually have a position within NLHS um, that helps to look at what the evidence is, what, what works best in school settings. They're called school health liaisons. So in each of our five um, zones, we have a school health liaison that really works within NLHS, um, has access to the best practice information of what, what works in schools for healthy eating. What kind of policies do we 
need to look at. And then actually works, uh, you know, their offices are actually, so even though the, these particular positions work with NLHS, their offices are actually in, uh, in schools and school boards so that they can really integrate into education practices and really sort of learn how things work in the school system, but also have access to best practice knowledge from the health system. So that's a sort of a practical example of how we try to work together. How do we understand the social determinants of health as it pertains to mental health, mental wellness, mental illness, and addictions? Because, you know, we see it manifest itself in school, more and more children diagnosed with a variety of issues and then we understand how addictions could start at a very tender age so inside this transformation has anything changed whether it be approach policy understanding or acknowledgement of mental health and addictions especially when we talk about our youth yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, we know that mental health is a significant, uh, you know, has a significant impact on all of our on all of our lives. Uh, there's been lots of excellent work happening through the Towards Recovery approach over the past several years to really transform our mental health and addiction services. We try to work, uh, you know, really closely um, with schools and other partners, in particular around youth. One of the things that we're looking at doing is partnering with groups like Choices for Youth, who who really understand youth mental health and how to reach people where they are. So with all of our services, we're trying to look for these innovative and new types of programs that can really build on these evidence-based models. It's good to have you on the show this morning, Daryl. I think there's still a lot of unknowns about what the new health authority will look like, how this transformation is going to look. But people, I wonder, will people feel the difference? Um, what's the intended outcome here? I know you want to make things better and more seamless and better positive healthcare outcomes and all the rest of these laudable and required goals. But will we feel a difference? Uh, you know, we, we certainly hope so. You know, one of the goals that we really want to strive for is is health equity. We want to see that people will have the same types of outcomes. You know, we know that there are pockets of people in Newfoundland and Labrador who, because of their circumstances related to social determinants of health and other things, um, you know, don't have the same opportunities to lead a healthy, long and healthy life. And we certainly hope that with these innovative approaches and transformation that we're undergoing, that we will we will see that. Uh, you know, we want to make Make sure that people can also access the right services at the right time in the right place so you know it's really about balancing you know service delivery and meeting people when they have health needs but also really trying to shift that conversation so that even as a health authority we can start to focus more on prevention uh, and promotion to, to stop that uh, demand for health services in the first place i appreciate the time this morning darla you're, darla you're always welcome Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Darla King, the VP of Transformation. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get an update on the uh, efforts, awareness, and the fundraising program. Bill Guiney, Susan Guiney's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Susan Guiney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Good. A lot of good points today on, on uh, your show. Um, we all know that it takes a village to raise a child. Um, parents, teachers, doctors, everybody it ha- plays a part in the wellness and health of every individual. And it's really hard on parents when they have mental issues or uh, anything, you know, stressful to them. And then the te- they go to school and the teachers have to continue on and help them as much as they can. And, and there are there's a, a lot of resources out there, but unfortunately, we do need more resources, I think. 
No doubt. You know, it's one thing to have a different change in policy or attitude, and we can build a new mental health and addictions facility over by the health sciences, but that doesn't necessarily change the way we interact with the general public, uh, access to services, you know, maybe attitude, training, and approach, and simply the numbers of human resources required. So, uh, you know... I don't know if anyone's got the the panacea, the real, the only idea that's going to work. Let's just hope that some of the work that's been done, whether it be in the health accord and the some of the transformation that's ongoing, let's hope it gets us where we need to be because right now we're just yeah. swimming upstream. Yeah, and like I don't know if you've seen any of the vapes that are out there that the kids are using. Oh, yeah. They're like the shapes of milkshakes, highlighters. They look pretty, and and you know, the kid sees it and says, "Oh, I want that because it looks pretty, it looks nice," and they don't realize the risk that they're causing to themselves by vaping. It's really prevalent. Uh, there's a lot, you know, not only uh, teenagers or youth using them, they're absolutely everywhere. You can see the bellows of vapor or whatever it is that comes out of your mouth after they use them. If, you know, like it seems to me, the companies that sell us the cigarettes and the rest, they're also selling us these vapes. And while there's been all sorts of crackdown about labeling and hiding the cigarettes behind these walls so that it doesn't have the big colorful, uh, a colorful wall that it used to be, but we haven't done it with vapes. And no, why not? Exactly. We don't even really understand them as much as we do, you know, the impact of tobacco. But we're putting them right out there. It's like one of those impulse buys. Instead of buying a, you know, a doodad, buying these vapes. And I suppose even if you just said, well, you can't buy them anymore, they're prohibited, they'll get them. All you got to do is go online yeah. and get whatever you exactly. want. So we just haven't exactly. done enough there. Yeah. And, like, I've seen people discard them on the ground like a, a cigarette butt. But these are worse probably than the cigarette butt. They're an actual plastic container sitting on the ground, and it's just discarded. It's you know, it's it's not right. It, it's we have to change something, but we can't do it ourselves. We we have to. Yeah. There's uh, there's just so much on the go. There's so much we have to navigate. It's yeah. it's overwhelming sometimes. It is. It is. Susan, give us an update on Bill. Well, Bill is starting now Monday on the 25th at 8 o'clock at Gasker's Town Hall. And he's walking towards you guys in St. John's. Uh, he's going to finish up on Signal Hill on the 30th, and that's National Day of Truth and Reconciliation Day. So he's asking anybody that they're going to walk with him, like maybe they can wear an orange shirt to support National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And um, just come out and support Bill. Like, cheer him on. Do whatever you want to do. Park on top of the hill. Be there when he comes up on top of the hill. He's uh, he's really looking forward to this. He's had a few health problems since he started this walk, but he's determined to finish this walk. And we're going to finish it on the 30th. Unless something... <laughs> we, we pray nothing else happens. But... Um, and I'll be there on top of the hill to support him. And I hope that uh, our RUA members and um, the Gathering Place members um, will be there to support him on. I know they will be. But um, And any media, Mark Quinn was there, to and Mary Kate O'Neill. So I'm hoping that there's going to be a big crowd to cheer him on and support him and encourage him to get up over that hill. How's he feeling? Because I know we got sidelined a little bit. He he's really good. He's it's on his mind to finish this walk. It's so important to him. But he's already started the plan next year. Good for him. <laughs> Terrific. So, yeah. 
and we we hope that his health stays strong and he stays good and we were able to finish this walk so again Gaspers Hall on the 25th uh eight o'clock town hall we're going to be leaving and walking onward and when we get closer to the Farmuse area closer to uh Farmuse Burryland area there's a group of kids uh they're in a play group and their um teacher or one that works with him and she's reached out to us and Bill said he would wear his Batman costume and they can come out as superheroes and uh cheer him on and walk with him so I'm hoping that happens too. So we'll keep her up to date when we're close to him. And hopefully the weather stays fine, you know, a little bit. So um, we're uh, looking forward to it. It all sounds good. Say hello to Bill. We exchange emails every now and then. Uh, hopefully he's yes. feeling well and gets this done. And uh, wish him good luck for me, Susan. I will so, Patty. You take care. Thanks a lot so much. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself. Okay. 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 There you go. Bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. What's on your mind this morning, Leela? Well, uh, I just wanted to call in and, and uh, just to clarify about some of the information that came out about the um, the cost of uh, families having to buy uh, groceries. Um, and, you know, the provincial average in the most recent uh, study that came out is uh, $1,236 per month. But when we look at the North Coast in my district, it's... Um, basically $1,860 a month. So that's over 600 more than the average. So a lot of people in the province, Patty, don't understand what's going on up in northern Labrador. Now, we've always paid more for our groceries. We've always paid more for, you know, the cost of transportation. But what we're seeing now is much higher rates of increase. And and that's pretty clear with this uh, new study that's been put out. Uh, In one year, our rate of food increased 18.5%, and that's the highest rate. And to me, that's worrisome because right now in northern Labrador, we're looking at another winter coming. And one of the things that's, that's, that's really, really been concerning for me is the cost of heating our homes. So when you look at this outrageous amount that we're paying to, to feed our families, and to heat our homes, I basically looked at it, and we're paying about $2,000 more than um, families elsewhere. So when you look at, like, say, for example, a listener now, you know, what would you do if somebody came up to you and said, for you to heat your home and feed your children or to feed yourself and, you know, and, and, and your loved ones? you now have to come up with an extra $2,000 because that's what we're facing on the North Coast. There's there's a lot of things that's going on and a lot of it's tied back to the provincial, um, you know, the provincial policies that uh, were, were introduced by this government when they got in in 2015, right up until the current day. Policies such as? Well, I, you know, I know people are getting tired of me talking about that freight boat that brought food and uh, household goods from the island. 
But if we're looking at paying more than $2,000 more now to heat our homes and, and to feed our families, what's going to end up happening, Patty, is people are... Are, are really not going to do well with this crisis. And we've already, you know, we, we've seen through, um, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, truth and reconciliation, that the the Inuit and Inuit, you know, in my district that makes up the communities were seriously harmed in the past. And with, with these cost of living increases that's going on now, that we never, you know, we never really encountered before. It's, it's really a setback, and there's very little being done. And the, this current policy of taking away our that, that freight boat that provided us food, so we could ha- pay high prices, but we could we could actually we could actually live and we could actually have quality of life, right? So to me, it's it's, it's really concerning. And and I'll go back to the reason why they took off that freight boat. It is, they told me it was because the trans labrador Highway was nearing completion, and everybody knows now, or should know in this province, there's not an inch of pavement going into my district. So the justification for taking off that boat is 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 not valid, you know. And uh, so for us, they should have kept it on if they want, you know, if if they can build a road connecting us. Well, that'll take years. This is something that they can do now, and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation. So if this government wants to talk about truth and reconciliation for people in my district and, and reversing some of those harms, well, what are they doing about the cost of living? What are they doing so people can feed their, their, their families and, and heat their homes? Um, for, for somebody to fill up a tank, if, you got, if you're on furnace oil, you know what I'm talking about. The tank in front of your house or side of your house is 1,000 meters. Right now, you know, we look back the, the winter that we just we just had. People in Northern Labrador was paying a thousand dollars extra to to actually fill up that tank than than people on the Avalon. So when you when you look when you look at those costs, uh, you know that's where I get the extra two thousand dollars. And so 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 things have to change, and this this government has to start taking credible steps to help us. You know, because we look at the we look at the the provincial food basket, and and we we experienced an increase in our food prices that were eighteen point five, you know, percent. And and there's a lot more going on than inflation, and it has uh, not so much to do with where we live anymore. It's it's about catering to big businesses, about making policies, you know, out of sight and out of mind. We'll save a little bit of money, uh, you know, for a province by taking off that free boat. Mm-hmm. You know. When we talk about uh, the price of food, I see the pictures people send from uh, different parts of Labrador. I mean, it's just outrageous how the price tag for just the fundamentals. Tell us how, you know, there's, there's provincial and federal policies that were intended to ease the pain at the grocery store, Nutrition North, air, the airlift subsidy. It's been slammed repeatedly. What were they intended to do and how come they didn't work? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite, quite ironic that uh, Nutrition North, uh, you know, I was talking to a constituent this morning and Nutrition North was in Maine last week, he told me. And, uh, you know, and, and what's happening now is Nutrition North looked at what was on shelves in, in the northern grocery store. You know, you know, everybody remembers Hudson Bay Company. Well, now we have Northern in, in Maine. In the northern store, uh, there was an issue with a lot of the expired food. So they've had to actually remove the, the food. Some of it's expired for up to three years. And now they're, you know, you're going in and you see the, the difference. But like some of these policies, like the sugar tax, 
Everybody in the province has heard about the sugar tax, right? And that's supposed to encourage people to choose healthier drinks. Well, you know, you talk about social media. One of my friends, um, um, Wilma and Conrad Jenkins, they posted a picture of healthy orange juice. You know, this the smaller, the smaller 350 mils. You know, like a small soda pop can. That costs over seven dollars, seven dollars and fifty-five cents. And now you're looking at choices. A family on limited income. Are you going to buy that healthy orange juice, or are you going to buy several bottles of pop? And 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 that's the choices that's being made. Because if you can't heat your house and if you can't feed all your children, you're going to have to make difficult decisions. And one of the things that actually suffers is quality of of life and quality of health. And and we're we're seeing that we're seeing people being impacted. And Patty, you know, like. This, this government, you know, talks about reconciliation, you know, and, and you know, I mean, I, I remember how upset people were when, you know, graves were being uncovered across Canada. And then the people in Newfoundland Labrador, you know, had to hear the brutal reality of, of, of what the schools um, did to people, you know, and, and we lived that, you know, my, my mother was in um, residential school, but it's not only about that, like in my district, Communities north of Maine were forced to resettle, you know, and they were put in in overcrowded houses that had, you know, had no running water, no no toilet facilities, you know, they they had no place to fish, uh, you know, they had no place to hunt, and 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 that broke families, and we're still seeing the consequences of that, and now, you know, we've we've had problems, you know, a lot of these people suffered dearly, you know, and basically everyone did, and. So now when you're looking at the struggles that people, you know, have incurred, encountered, you know, like now you put on top of this, oh, I'm not going to be able to feed my children. I'm not going to be able to heat my house. And I was talking to uh, a person this morning, both the husband, both the husband and, 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 and the partner, the wife works. They're making really good money and they're struggling to actually be able to afford to heat their house. And they're looking at healthy foods. And the other problem is, uh, are those foods available, right? So, so like, I, I just want to let people in the province know what's going on and to put it in dollar, dollar values. Like, just for food and heat, we're paying $2,000 extra than, than people in the rest of the province. And that's not about inflation. That's not about COVID. Um, that's not about geographic um, um, remoteness. There's things going on now. There's policy and decision sets that's, that's not supporting the average person. And when they changed that, um, you know, when they took off the freight boat and they trained the, changed the marine services, the Nazi government was on the record saying they weren't consulted. The Inuit community governments weren't consulted. And with their land claims, there has to be proper due consultation to make those changes. And it was done. And who benefited? Who got, you know, who got the contract to provide that service? You know, $14.5 million for, uh, for one boat that goes up and, and basically doesn't, um, it doesn't provide service for more than six months out of the year. So those changes were made rapidly. And, you know, people question it, people in my district. But at the end of the year, at the end of the day, we're looking at our elders suffering. We're looking at our children suffering. And we're looking at the continuation of the intergenerational trauma. And as out there, people can actually look at the, um, you know, the, the, the report. They can go on and look what first um, Food First NL had to say, you know. 
he talked about uh, the adverse conditions uh, people in Nunatsibut and um, um, Nunatsibut are facing. And uh, just to put it in perspective, Patty, uh, you know, I'll quote from the report. A family of four in northern Labrador will need to spend 129%. That's more than all their base income um, uh, support rate just on food to afford nutritional, the nutritional food basket, right? And that's not even looking at additional costs of living, such as heating a house, right? Over 100%. So that, like, there's something wrong there because I remember, like, growing up, you know, in McCovic, you know, and visiting my relatives, you know, in Maine and Hopetel and, and Postville and in England. That was not always the case. People could afford to heat their house. They could afford food. They could afford nutritional food, right? So things have changed. And, and, and like I said, I think there's been an erosion of services. Leela, I appreciate the concerns and the time this morning. Anything else quickly before I have to say goodbye? No, Patty, like I said, it's, it's just trying to educate the, you know, the people in the province of what, what we're going through and, and the rationale you know, um, behind our advocacy. Like we're, we're just trying to educate the people and let them know the facts because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of prejudice and racism that still exists because of the misinformation. So the only way we can fight uh, racism and discrimination is to educate people of the, the true realities and, and the real history. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's uh, Leela Evans. She's the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Let's take a break. When we come back, Alana's in the queue. She's a school bus driver. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Alana. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Okay, this morning. Thank you. How about you? Very good. Thank you. Um, I'm calling this morning um, about an incident that happened uh, late uh, Monday night, early Tuesday morning, one thirty in the morning. Um, I went. I dropped my uh, daughter and some of her friends off to the Bella Vista uh, for a going away party, and um, later that evening I picked them up. Um, it was one thirty in the morning, and as we were heading towards Torbay on Torbay Road, um, the light that was the the next light before McDonald's. We were going to stop to McDonald's, so it was in the right lane. And um, there was a car at at the at the red light, but it was green light. So I just pulled up behind him because, you know, that happens. I've done it myself. Um, not paying attention or whatever, so I just waited for them to realize that the light was green and move on, which they did. Um, then halfway between there and McDonald's, almost almost getting to McDonald's. They were in front of me as well, so I was chatting with the kids in the car, and um, when I, then I, real, I realized the car in front of me had slammed on his brakes, come to a complete stop in the road, and with, I believe, the intention of me, with the purpose of me hitting them, rear-ending them, um, I slammed on my brakes and um, managed to stop. Um, just inches before I hit them. Um, I'm I'm a commercial driver. I have my class one. I drive a school bus. I'm very, I've, I've had a license now for 37 years. I'm a very experienced driver. My, so anyway, when he did this, I, I came to a screeching halt. And then he decided, he, he pulled, so if you picture two cars, one in front of the other, stopped in the road. He did a complete UE right there at the spot, spun out, did a complete UE, and almost came like he was going to come up behind me, but he almost T-boned me. 
slammed on his brakes just before he slammed into the side of my car. All the kids in the car screaming, whatever. I kept a cool head. I just I just pulled, kept moving forward because I was almost to the McDonald's to get into the parking lot where there were people. that We were literally the only two cars on the road at this point. And uh, so I just kept moving forward. And as he did his UE and slammed on his brakes before he hit me, um, as I was moving forward, he kind of pulled up alongside of me and very aggressively was like taunting me. And so, and then immediately just took off towards tour in the Torbay direction again. Um, I pulled into the McDonald's parking lot. You know, we were going to McDonald's anyway, but there was several cars in there and in the drives or whatever. So I was trying to get to where there were people because, you know, I don't understand what this. Of course, it was obviously some criminal behavior going on. Um, and if I wasn't an experienced driver, I would have slammed into them. And then what? What, what is their intent? Are they going to haul everybody out of the car and, and rob them and beat them or whatever? Or shake me down now for some money to pay for damages? Um, you know, I don't I, I don't know what, what, the, what their intention was. But if I had been a less experienced driver, if my daughter had had probably one of her less experienced drivers, uh, friends pick her up from downtown that night it could have been a very bad situation you know I, I, and as, as aggressive as they were driving I can imagine how aggressive they would have been if I had hit them it, it obviously if someone is intending to have that collision happen there's something more nefarious behind it uh, what that w- might be I don't know you could be on the right path with it so what have you done about it well, we never got a license plate or make or model. It just happened so fast. I did ask the kids in the car to get their phones ready just in case he did come into McDonald's uh, parking lot with us and try to, um, you know, continue, escalate the situation. So I was prepared once, you know, it happened. Like, But he did speed off, and it was uh, a gray-colored minivan sort of SUV type of vehicle, and I just only got the first two. Uh, letters to the license plates, which are JA, which is pretty much every <laughs> SUV or you know minivan type of car starts with that, those two letters. But um, you know, I just would like to warn people because these things are happening. And if that had been my senior mother, or um, you know, she she would have wrecked her car for one thing, paid a fortune to these people. They uh, yesterday I heard you a man call in a senior that was have beat to death yeah. on the road. You know, I mean, the things that can happen is just brutal. I would suggest that anybody is driving in St. John's have a dash cam. It's so important. Last night, if that had happened Monday night, if I had slammed into him, I would have been totally, at, uh, you know, it would have been my word against theirs. I would have been the one rammed into the back of them. So it would have looked like I was at fault. Um, you know, we weren't speeding. They, they, He wasn't speeding. I wasn't speeding. And we were just going along at the, you know, regular uh, maximum speed at the, in, in that road but um, a dash cam oh my god would have would have been the only way out of that situation if the cops had been called or if you know for insurance purposes it's, it would have been it would have been a nightmare and then also you know what do you do and what happens then when you know you ram into somebody and they're that aggressive and who knows it could have been a carload of people and you know, if that had only been my daughter and uh, uh, somebody that she'd just been picking up from somewhere in that hour and night, you know, what would have happened to them? 
in that situation, you know? It just it just is scary, scary stuff that's happening on the roads in St. John's right now. It's th- This is a very strange story, and you're not wrong. Driving around town is white-knuckle stuff uh, sometimes, unnecessarily so. I was, got, you know, I made a bad choice. I went down Elizabeth Avenue the other day, and the guy behind me was, I mean, inches away from my back bumper. Where was I going to go? It's construction. Right, yeah. I'm following it, but a you know reasonable distance behind the car in front of me. We're all going nowhere in a hurry, so I okay. wasn't quite sure what his problem was. But I'm just like jeepers, creepers, buddy. There's nowhere for me to go. It's a construction yeah. zone. So, and you're yeah. right. So, as a school bus driver, do you use a, a dash cam on the bus? No, we don't have dash cams on the bus. No. That's one thing we absolutely should have. I yeah, I honestly believe that too. Like I I I drive rurally, so two hours out of St. John, so I. I don't encounter that much traffic on my bus route. Most of the people I encounter on the road as a bus driver are probably parents of the kids that I have on the bus. So they're all very, you know, uh, respectful and everything. So I don't have, I don't, I don't pass a lot of traffic. So I don't have a lot of problems with people passing my stop arm or being uh, disrespectful to the bus. I know the people in town have a lot of problem with that, but personally, I don't. Uh, fair enough, and that's good news because I see reports right from the beginning of the school season throughout the entirety of it all the way to the next July. We'll see those examples in and around the Northeast Avalon. It's far too prominent and prevalent to me. Where are you going? You know, do you want to be the driver that strikes and hurts or kills a child getting off a school bus? Absolutely. When the lights are flashing, the stop sign is deployed, we all know what that means, and it actually yeah. means uh, travel in both directions has to stop. So yeah, sure. I don't know what the panic is. I do is. have one um, where I dropped the kids off at at the school that I I uh, drop off to the high school where I drive to um, when I pull up and and unload school students at the school I'm required to have my stop sign out other bus drivers when they pull into the school while I have my bus uh, while I have my stop arm out they respect the stop arm they don't unload students they don't pass me uh, they don't do anything until I unload my students, my staff primers in, and I leave. Um, I do have a pro- uh, not a problem, but I would suggest that um, people understand that the laws of the stop arm don't stop on the school property or in a parking lot. If if that stop arm is out, you need to stop. Even if the school bus is stopped, is letting kids off. At a school, like I have, there are parents down at the school who, um, perpendicular to me, will drop off their kids and they will just cross the front of the bus and leave. Um, but really, in, in by law, they're not supposed to, you know. So just be aware that if if a bus is stopped in a parking lot or in a school parking lot, um, especially on school property, unloading school a school bus. Even with a full school bus, that takes minimum, of, uh, maximum of, of three minutes for kids to get off a bus. It's not worth it. It's not worth losing your points on your license and and you know possibly injuring a child or somebody. Just just stop and wait. It's not that long. It's not that long. I appreciate the time, and I'm sorry to hear about that entirely bizarre encounter that you had. Yes, I hope nobody, uh, you know, those those people are still out there, and they're probably looking for a quick payday. So everybody be just very extra cautious, and especially, uh, you know, young drivers, stay alert, you know, stay off your phones, stay off your, you know, uh, when you have friends in the car, just, just pay extra, extra attention to what's going on around you. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Bye-bye. Alana. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, you know, I, someone wants me to put this out there. There's obviously, in the most recent history regarding the snow crab fishery, lots of problems. I saw a six-week tie-up, and we know what that's meant. And then we see the issues with the uh, trigger of the unemployment numbers that are down outside the Northeast Avalon and what that means for unemployment insurance. A lot of this is going to come back to trying to get it right on the price-setting panel stuff. So there is an opportunity for the general public, and I assume that means everybody, regardless if you're directly or indirectly involved in the fishery, to have your say. They've struck a fish price setting strategy review team. They're now accepting public input. There's a deadline that's upcoming. It's October the 5th. So if you want to talk about whatever formula-based mechanisms that should be employed to set prices that would be seen as more uh, adequate and fair and appropriate, then you can have your say. So if you're a harvester or anybody, that has heard the stories, has some thoughts on it, you can send an email. That's a very easy one. It's strategicreview at gov.nl.ca. Quick check out on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, want to talk about anything under the sun, 709 273 Elsewhere, toll free long distance, 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. On an emailer during the break regarding dash cam, school buses, and the like, he says he was told that the department says no dash cams on buses because of privacy for students which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense given the fact that virtually every single one of the students would have a video camera in the palm of their hand in the form of their cell phone, plus a dash cam points out. The dash cam would be in an effort to see who may indeed have passed a school bus with the lights flashing, the uh, stop arm deployed, those types of things. So, you know, cameras on buses pointing at the children in the seats, you know, it might be in a, an additional layer of making sure that the shenanigans are kept to a bare minimum on the bus. You know, human monitors, nothing quite beats that. But I don't buy the privacy concern when it comes to a dash cam pointing out on the dashboard of a school bus. Because, again, I mean, everything and just about every child has a camera and a video camera right there on their phone. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. There was one issue that made the news yesterday regarding the Marine Institute, which I have a ton of respect for, and it's, got, it's one of the real gems in our post-secondary institutions here in the province. And that was about their cooperation, or an MOU they had signed with Ocean Gate Expeditions regarding the storage of the Titan submersible and all the rest of it. And hopefully that doesn't hurt the Marine Institute. But apparently they just recently held a seminar regarding cybersecurity. You know, we certainly still don't know a whole, whole lot about the attack that crippled the Meditech system here in the province. And, you know, some people were given, uh, well, everyone who was uh, had their personal information compromised was given the opportunity for, I think it was two years or maybe five years of credit monitoring through Equifax. And if you're one of those folks and you want to give us an update on what that's meant to you, whether or not any of your credit has been compromised to the point where someone has tried to take advantage of you, we'll take it on. But in the world of cybersecurity, you know, I don't really think we have a whole lot of attention to it because we talk about intelligence gathering and national defense and all the rest, and there's some good stories to be discussed about intelligence, foreign interference, and the like, and we should be talking about that. But when it comes to the electrical grid, water supplies, and yes, 
uh, marine traffic. So I hadn't really given a whole lot of consideration to this, but now that they've had the news story regarding the cybersecurity seminar, so they're looking at education, training, research, and awareness of the risk for the marine traffic world. So they're talking about the fact that you could have a hacker take over the navigational tools aboard, say, for instance, an oil tanker and have full control of how that, how and where that tanker goes. So those types of things are wild. When we add in conversations surrounding, and lots of talk about NATO, obviously, these days, and some of it is really quite bizarre, but we all have a requirement or a commitment to spend 2% of GDP to, uh, to fund the operations of NATO. This country about 1.5%. But what's not included in that, you know, we're talking about military hardware and tanks and jets and all the rest of it. But I don't understand why cybersecurity and cyber protections aren't included inside of national defense. Because if we're talking about defending ourselves, defending the healthcare system, defending the electrical grid, defending the water treatment uh, programs and facilities, how can that not be part of defending yourself? So we see it all the time. Some of the biggest operations in the world have been compromised by the hackers. Hackers have got into the Pentagon. Hackers have got into the biggest hotel chains in the world. Hackers are relentlessly trying to get into government services. We actually had Bill Blair, federal minister on this show, not so long ago, talking about just how relentless the hackers are in trying to infiltrate the federal government's operations. And basically, in a, to paraphrase what he said, is it's nonstop. It's absolutely nonstop. And you can only imagine that's exactly true. And even in our own personal devices, people getting hacked way too frequently. So when we talk national security, how that is not included in uh, sp uh, defense spending really kind of confuses me. I posed the question yesterday, and we talked about intelligence gathering, and it's the issue surrounding the announcement by the prime minister accusing the Indian government through their agents of an assassination of a uh, BC Sikh leader on the 18th of June of this year. Lots of big questions being asked, rightfully so, because it kind of came out of nowhere. And one of the thoughts was that, you know, it's just so carefully politically calculated regarding the timing. The pressure is on the liberals on a variety of fronts. And so people say, well, this is a purposeful timed announcement. Okay, and look, everything, everything inside of politics comes with purposeful timing associated with it. My understanding on that front as well is that the country was confused and angry that we did not have enough information about who knew what when about foreign interference into our elections. And so what happened was the media got leaks from sources and they produced it in newspapers and, on, and online. And so that's how we found out about it. When it came to this alleged Indian government involvement in an assassination of someone on Canadian soil, is again, my understanding is the Globe and Mail had the information and they were going to put it to print replicating exactly how we found out about Chinese interference and how that backlash was aimed at the federal government. And so consequently, they thought, well, we better get it out there. And then I, you know, I further asked this question. I got a couple of uh, pretty thoughtful replies via email overnight about, you know, what is it that we want government officials to do on this front? When they know about whether it be attacks on Michael Chong or Han Dong or Chinese police stations or Chinese interference in elections, when and how do we want to be told? Now, there's always going to be a lot of very sensitive intelligence we're never going to get a look at. And that's probably the right thing. But on this front, do we want government officials to tell us up front about China? Do we want them to tell us up front about India? Or are we just simply, you know, is it all simply about the politics? If you don't like the prime minister, then it doesn't matter what he does or the timing that, uh, with which he does things. But that's the question. You know, I would prefer to be told as much as we can be told when it comes down to things like that. 
Now, thankfully, we're going to see the public inquiry. The Liberals dragged their feet for far too long, unnecessarily so, a political miscalculation, not to call a public inquiry about foreign interference in elections. Thankfully, it needn't be solely focused on China because there's lots of bad actors out there. The major parties have agreed on terms of reference and the appointment of Maria Jose Hogue to be the justice leading that public inquiry. So that's a good thing. How we proceed here and what it means for trade implications and an already brutal relationship between Canada and India, I think we had to be told this information. And now, of course, we're going to see the additional questions from opposition parties about, well, I need to see more evidence. How do we see an appropriate amount of evidence to justify the Prime Minister making this allegation publicly? And, of course, it's further sour relationships with India and expelling of diplomats on all sides. And the Indian, uh, Indian, the Indian government has shut down visa processing in the country as a result, all the rest of it. But you wonder how that jives with our relationship inside the Five Eyes. Right? So the Five Eyes is not new. It's a network of intelligence sharing between the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. It started way back in 1946 between the United States and the United Kingdom. And in 1948, it was expanded to include uh, Canada. In 1955, expanded to include Australia and New Zealand. So basically, they, it's an information sharing network, right? And apparently we're told that uh, CSIS and the federal government have briefed our partners inside the Five Allies uh, the Five Eyes, and, you know, I don't imagine that we're a standalone CSIS agency, you know, doing nothing but our own intelligence work, as opposed to the cooperation that is part of that five-country alliance. So what are the our allies, our trading partners, our intelligence-sharing partners, saying about how much information could and should be exposed? Because maybe, just maybe, some other intelligence agencies, notably the United States, may have played a very active role in this intelligence gathering. So I know that's a big, lofty, headline-grabbing conversation, but the question will be, who do, we want us to, who do we want to tell us about this stuff? Do we want it to be uh, Bob Fife at the Globe and Mail? Do we want it to be Sam Cooper? Or do we want it to be the Prime Minister? We'll leave that up to you, and you can chime in on that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Robin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How about you? Um, I am tired. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you're, I, I hear your calls. Um, you know, I, I pay attention to the level of frustration in people's voices and that sort of thing. And it just, it, you're getting a lot of it <laughs> yeah. on you lately. So, um, thank you for taking it. <laughs> it's not a fun job, is it? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to put a label a on it, but it could, it could be a lot, but I'm, I can't complain. No, I understand, and that's kind of where I am, too, because uh, I hear a lot of stories myself. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't moved to this neighborhood seven years ago, I I would not be talking to you right now. I know that, because I I didn't see. I mean, I was working in the nonprofit world. I was, you know, helping with policy development around child welfare and child care and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until I moved down here and started talking to people who live here and hearing their experiences and then talking to the people who are trying to help them and hearing their experiences. And I, I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's tough. And I just want to tell you about a couple of situations um, that, I've been, that I and my, uh, some of my neighbors and people working in with the organizations have been dealing with 
that will kind of give you an idea of what's happening down here. And uh, I also want to uh, thank Paul Lane for coming down because uh, he came down with us and did a walk around this week. And he has absolutely no obligation um, to do that. Uh, but it's been interesting to see Paul's tweets uh, since then, because we were able to talk to people who live there. Um, there's a couple who have been living on Cabot Street. He, the husband um, was born there in the home that they live in now. And uh, both of them worked their, their entire working careers, uh, one of them for Eastern Health uh, at St. Clair's and the other for Dan Ross, uh, retired in the last couple of years. And they're going through health. They are going through hell, and they're the kindest, most loveliest people. Um, but, you know, we have they have um, um, rental units on either side and uh, people with severe mental health issues, keeping them up all night, um, making it so that they can't even have a flower box outside their home. And I got to know these people because they're always sitting outside of their house, saying hello to people who are walking by. Um, there's so many wonderful people here in this community. And it wasn't until COVID, uh, no, not COVID, Snowmageddon struck, and we actually started going door to door that we learned about some of the things that people were going through. And I, I know I'm talking a lot, but I, I just want to tell you about, like, when I first moved here, okay, the focus was on sex work and, you know, the implication of having sex work in the neighborhood. And let me tell you that I have done a complete 180 about um, how I think about that, how I speak about that. Uh, it's very important to me that people understand that it, sex work uh, and people doing it, like, it's, it's a symptom of a much deeper uh, problem that we have, as is drug use, as is graffiti, as is the increase in crime, as is the problem that are, that are happening in our school system, is that we have a justice system that is beyond inefficient, that is um, violating the human rights of people, um, they're constantly transporting um, um, inmates back and forth to different places, letting them get out early because they just don't have the space. Uh, and then on top of that, there's no money down here. There's no supports. There's like there was. There are a number of Newfoundland Labrador housing units that have been boarded up for a long time in our neighborhood. And Paul said when he was down the other day that if this was in Mount Pearl, there would be someone going around um, checking on properties. And if they saw a boarded up property with garbage out front, the owner would be getting a letter in the mail. And then they would be told that if they didn't remove it and fix it up, that they would be fined for it. These are government properties. <laughs> that have been left here. There's no garbage can in my neighborhood. They removed them all because they were being used too much. The the lack of attention that is not only given to the community, but the people, you know, aesthetically, but the people as well. And And so it's been really difficult to hear people from government talk all week about well-being and about the social determinants of health and how important they are. When the liberals came in, they took out the 
world-renowned poverty strategy that had lifted so many Newfoundlanders out of poverty. We were doing so well. We had the, the most amount of housing starts in, in 2014 when it was at its best. We had, um, you know, people receiving services. When the, when the Liberals came in and gave their big budget, they cut the uh, public service. And you know where all those cuts were made? In NL housing, in, uh, you know, children, seniors, and social development, in justice and corrections, in anything that services those groups of people who need that help. And so when, uh, when the leader, uh, liberal leadership um, uh, was going on in 2020, Andrew Fury promised us a poverty reduction strategy. We have been waiting since July 2020 for a poverty reduction strategy. And so when this well-being week was announced and we were told to stay tuned, we were thinking we were going to get some sort of strategy. And so there's been nothing, absolutely nothing. And so I, 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 I've been dealing with people who have been homeless People I've known for years who have been fine as long as they had a roof over their heads. One particular gentleman, I mean, we there's been three of us keeping him alive and, and advocating for him, calling the shelter line like 20 times a day. Try, and they'd say, well, he has to call. He doesn't have a phone. Like the, the, the lack of respect and understanding, there's no mental health services. None. Mental health issues in my community are treated by the police. So it's, it's, it's really hard to, to see government touting this wonderful health transformation that they're doing um, and, and to know in reality what's happening down here. And so, you know, giving tours to people and coming around and talking to the people who live here and seeing what's happening that seems to be working for us. We have been begging the premier, John Hogan, um, Paul Pike. Paul Pike wouldn't meet with us. He came down and very quickly walked through with Jim Din, but wouldn't come with us. And see, that's the difference. We, this is our neighborhood. We know the people. We know the issues. But they refuse to meet with us. And so it's just getting, it's getting exhausting. Uh, you know, it's just getting exhausting. So I just want to say that if people out there, your listeners, um, care <laughs> about human beings um, and they want to come see what's going on here and help us advocate for my neighbors, because a lot of them don't have the capability and the agency to advocate for themselves, I want to change that. But I need help. So. People can find me, um, but we got to do something because, like, it's really, really bad. Yeah, I took a uh, a look around, and it's it's right there for all to see. You don't have to be living there full time to see sporadically because it seems like it's nonstop. What do you make of Jim Din's idea of a community center? Because, you know, bricks and mortar is one thing, but if it actually housed some support would be quite another. What do you think? Well, I mean, it, it was kind of my idea originally, which is okay. I mean, but yeah, I mean, the, the community centers, when COVID hit, I got to know Kim White, who was in charge of all the five community centers. And we were able to get right to the children, get them food, get those services right away through the community center. 
And I, that was so valuable to me and changed my perception of how we get outreach into communities. And we do it through these services. We don't need a new building. We can take a couple of those boarded up Newfoundland Labrador housing units. They did that at Chalker Place uh, about 20 years ago. They took one of their units and basically we need a place for people to come and get help. That doesn't involve calling the police. We need a place for people to get help going through the um, landlord and tenant process. Do you know that if you are going to witness someone to say that there has been some sort of problem happening, you have to physically bring that document out to Mount Pearl to get it stamped. Like, do you, <laughs> people who don't drive cars, <laughs> right? I mean, for people not, some of the people we're trying to help was what I'm saying, who are in most need of help. There are no services offered by government that will help them. And actually, I would say at this point in time, that anytime they try to access government services, including the housing emergency shelter line, they are re-traumatized. Majorly. Robin, I appreciate no, it. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, just because we just cleared news time, I appreciate yeah. it. You know, when we speak with Mark and you, and look, it's not just one neighborhood, right? And it's not just one region. There's a lot of these types of discussions. And I'm just going to make a quick reference, uh, without naming anybody, to an email saying, you know, you hear all these pleas for more, pleas for more money, pleas for more services, and who go, who's going to pay for it? You know, we're leaving an unmanageable debt to our children and grandchildren. Look, people aren't wrong, but it's it's not about having to spend more. It's just how we spend what we already spent. You know, even if we're talking about inside the world of social assistance, if you added up every program and every boutique tax cut and all of those things and came up with a, an actual number and looked what we get for it versus maybe rethinking how we spend that pot of money, maybe just maybe, I can't say definitively because no one's taken on that exercise in full, maybe there's a better way to do business. Seems to me there is because if we're thinking that status quo and the current rate of spend and what the Outcomes are education, criminal justice, healthcare, all the way up and down the line. Obviously, things have to be done better. So it's not about adding to the debt. It's trying to reduce some of the most expensive things in the country. Interaction with criminal justice, interaction with the health uh, healthcare system. If we don't figure that out, we're going to spend more money because we were too afraid to change the way we actually approach and think about how public monies get spent. Right now, it, you know, subsidies to industry, all those types of things. Yeah. Include all of these things to see what's actually working and what has just been the traditional way of doing business because the traditional way ain't working not like it could or should uh final thoughts to you robin before i have to go well i'm working on it patty i uh, let me tell you i have been through every document that has been tabled through the house of assembly for the last 15 years and i can tell you that there's been no accountability no oversight like in terms of uh, there's no strategic plan if you look at any strategic plan from any part of the government there the way they indicate success is all about like how many meetings they hold how many papers they write how many forms they get signed like there's no, no meat to it at all so governance is a whole other issue and i'll call you another time to talk about that thank you i appreciate the time thanks robin all Bye. right. Bye-bye. All right. Before we get to the news, just for folks in the Marysvale, Georgetown area, uh, beginning right around now to 2 p.m. is the target race, so the roads are closed in the area. So if you were planning on heading in that direction, maybe you'll have to wait till post-2 p.m. when the target wraps up. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, John's in the queue to talk about an issue I spoke to before we spoke to Robin about intelligence sharing. 
I don't have all the answers, but a conversation on it, I think, is now becoming more and more important and apparent. John's there, and then we're going to talk about subsidized housing and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, hello, Patty. Uh, hello. I just want to yeah, talk about the Five Eyes thing there for a bit and uh, intelligence sharing. Uh, I have uh, quite a bit of experience um, in the intelligence community, and I know that sources uh, or, or uh, you know, their agencies are always reluctant to give out information, particularly when it pertains to or has the potential of revealing a source or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's there, there are always situations where, you know, you, you kind of have to give some leniency and and share some of that information. And this this, I think, is a, is a perfect example. I mean, um, we've, we've got a prime minister right now who was overseas and there was a lot of controversy about his visit in India. You know, uh, I, I guess he got some egg on his face at one point. Um, and it just it's it just seems very coincidental that after this little bit of an embarrassing situation overseas and his visit that immediately on his return, you know, once he gets the gunfire, then he starts releasing this information about, oh, well, you know, I've got something else to share. I don't know if you remember this movie uh, called Wag the Dog. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> it came out, I think, back in the late 90s. And it just kind of reminds me of that, you know, that all of a sudden there's this big revelation about, you know, people operating with inside Canada's borders and, uh, you know, the, the potential that this, this uh, murder in B.C. was, was connected. Uh, I just find it very coincidental and odd that he came out with this now. If they had this information, was there potential to stop this murder? I mean, um, you know, without revealing sources, uh, you know, where they got the information. Well, that's not how I understand the story, is that this was intelligence gathering after the fact, and that the prime minister had briefed our allies, notably the United States and the UK, in India, and also approached the Modi and the Indian government at the same time. And upon return, look, there's always going to be... Legitimate questions about the timing of these types of announcements. Absolutely right. Politics is basically timing because that will rule the rules for changing the channel, deflection, and all those types of things. Uh, We've also been told, and I'll get your reaction to this, that the way that we found out about Chinese interference in elections was Bob Fife and other reporters had sources that leaked them information. My understanding now is that, and it's been confirmed, that Bob Fife had this information was going to go to press. So I guess the Prime Minister said, okay, I'm either going to take it from all sides because I'll replicate what we did not do regarding China, if we don't do it again with India, then we're going to face the same backlash or fire or storm or whatever the case may be. So what do you think? Does that, do you think that's a legitimate timing-related concern or question? Sorry, uh, what's the, what's the qu- I didn't get the gist of the question. So, well, the gist of the question is we learned about China through the media. Right? right. We, we were just about to learn about India through the media versus the prime minister. So I suppose not only a, a careful calculation regarding timing, but also just a political uh, consideration anyway, that we were either going to find out about China from Bob Fife and India from Bob Fife, or we're going to hear about it from the prime minister. That That's, I guess, the question. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, timing is everything. Um, sometimes do you do you do you preempt 
uh, a situation uh, by by going public, or do you do do you wait and see what the outcome, what the aftermath is going to be, and then you know follow it up with a with a with a media release? I, I mean, I, I think that giving people the information. Uh, sooner rather than later is better because it, it 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 gives you confidence that that you know there's nothing they're not trying to be nefarious in their in holding back the information there's they're not trying to hide they're being open and transparent and let's face it uh, our this government that we have right now um, they got into office partially because they said they were going to be open and transparent and you know they're not going to hold anything back they're going to you know involve Canadians in decision making and all this kind of stuff but that's not what we're seeing especially no. in in situations like this yeah and look i am the furthest thing removed from understanding what goes on about behind closed doors and intelligence gathering and intelligence sharing uh just from a generalized taxpaying voter perspective it was either one or two things bob fife tells me or the prime minister tells me and then though the continued calls for more information more evidence i'm not even sure what people are getting at on that front you know i wonder what that relationship looks like in between the united states the uk us new zealand and australia uh regarding how that information gets shared because it could compromise any number of these other countries so i think it's a bit more complicated than we allow the headlines to tell us about you know it's one thing as an opposition party to hold government to account critically important role and they should do it i don't know about how they do it but more evidence more evidence of what you know what do we think we're going to glean from you know this is how this evidence was gathered these are the people we spoke to here's exactly what we know is that information that we even think is pragmatic to share what do our allies think of that so i think it's a bit more complicated than we're led to believe by you know simply the political rhetoric surrounding it all what do you think well, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a it's a slippery slope, right? At, at how much information do you give? I mean, uh, information gathering and, and intelligence is, is is a puzzle. And with every piece that that you release, the, the bigger picture is starting to be built. I mean, that's the analogy that we've always used in the intelligence community. Um, so, I mean, you have to be very careful about what pieces <laughs> what pieces you release and when you release them, and you and 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 how you release them. Um, you know, we're not. Canada's not going to say, "Oh, well, the, you know, the Australians gave us this piece of information. The Americans gave us this piece of information." But there's always something that they can give that's not going to uh, give us. You know, reveal sources and and, and all that kind of stuff. No, I mean, of course this not. This is ridiculous. Hiding, hiding everything and just saying, "Well, this, these are the facts, but we can't tell you how we we came to those facts because you know." And hide behind that cloak of it's five eyes only. Yeah, and that's why I asked the question of what exactly are people asking to see here. You know, and inside the world of intelligence, and maybe this is simply based on watching TV and movies rather than reality, is intelligence gathering comes up with a degree of likelihood that you know what you're talking about, as opposed to 100% certainty. 100% certainty is left for science and mathematics, not necessarily intelligence and or politics. So, right. you know, it's wet your finger, put it up to the wind to make a political calculation, and then hopefully we are going to be careful with this stuff. It's like even with the public inquiry about foreign interference in elections. It's quite likely that we don't learn not one additional piece of information. Because if, the, if people are going to be kept from public eyeballs gazing at intelligence, whether it be sources or process or allies, what do we think we're even going to get? It's a mistake by the Liberals to drag their feet for so long on this one to call for a public inquiry, but I'm pretty sure we're not going to find out a whole lot more. No, you, you may be right on that one, for sure. Yeah, tricky uh, piece of business. Way over my head, but, you know, an important conversation. <laughs> 
thanks. I can, can I comment on something that Robin, uh, I was listening uh, to Robin's comments about sure. uh, government bureaucracy. Yeah. Just real quick. I've called in before about, about my spouse. We moved back from him. Uh, uh, from away, and she's a healthcare professional trying to get a job in the province. And I think Robin is absolutely right. The the metrics that that the government uses for success are, are not the metrics that 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 Newfoundland taxpayers, that the citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador want to see. We want to see real results in the hospitals. You know, wait times being reduced and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's been driving me nuts for the last few days. Um, you know, we've, we've got a health minister who is, is kind of always jumping the gun. We, you know, he's, he's so proud that, that we've just announced this a new initiative and this is going to do this and it's going to do that. Well, let's not count the chickens, count the chickens before they hatch here because, um, we all know that this is a very slow process, but I think Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have been very, very patient in allowing the government to come up with a new health care strategy. Unfortunately, we're not really seeing those results. So you can, and that, my point here is, I agree, I agree with Robin that, that we're using the wrong metrics to, for, for, for measuring uh, the amount of success of all of these initiatives by the government. And you can, you can, I can have a health accord tomorrow and a bunch of my friends can sit around with a dozen beer and come up with all kinds of uh, strategies to fix this problem. But if they're not realistic, then it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And one example, I, I also heard on the news, I think from VOCM, that um, the we, per capita, we are spending uh, more money than any other province on health care, but we're still not getting the results. Uh, or, or money isn't the issue. That was the, that was the thing. It said money is not the issue. We're just not able to recruit the doctors and everything else. Well, in my spouse's case, here's a perfect example of a healthcare professional, a mental health nurse working working abroad, and uh, very good at what she does. And when she came back to get a job here in the province, they nickel and dimed her to death. She wasn't entitled. They said she wasn't entitled to the come from, come come home bonus. She wasn't entitled to benefits. Uh, like I mean, just it was preposterous. Um, what she was working for and she said why did i move home you know to help my province when you know they say they have all these jobs i come home there aren't all these jobs because they all have caveats and all these bonuses that they promise they're all you know they're all there are caveats on all those bonuses mm-hmm. too add to so, it maybe not necessarily all only the metrics for some we don't even know what they are you know recruitment efforts for nurses in india we don't have a number to prove whether or not we're successful doctors in ireland we don't know daycare update we have no idea what the demand is, so how do you measure success of government policy towards recovery report on mental health and addictions? We don't know how anybody uses any measurables of success there, so the point is well taken. Sometimes the metrics are maybe flawed, but sometimes they're not even there. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. I appreciate the time, John. Enjoy the call. Thanks, Patty. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, subsidize housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Uh, thank you again, Patty, for uh, taking my call on uh, an important uh, issue of uh, social housing. No problem. Uh, Patty, there, there's an area in Cornwall, Crestview area, uh, where there's a, 
uh, about uh, 32 units right now that uh, aren't open. Uh, I know the minister um, uh, at the time sent out an email saying that it needs some major uh, redevelopment. Um, I've I've tried. I wrote last year to the previous ministers to try to get some answers and try to get it uh, uh, open and, and get the work done to uh, to open these these units. And there's many more. There's just in one area, 32 units. Uh, there's people that I know and I visit are living in a hotel in Corner because of a lack of housing, subsidized housing. Uh, families are are being split up because the kids can't go into the hotel staying with their parents or their father or their mother. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a crisis here in Cornerbrook. So what type of subsidized housing are we talking about? Is it Newfoundland Labrador housing units that have not been, that are not uh, refit or refurbished or renovated? Or what's the subsidized housing you're talking about? It is Newfoundland Labrador housing. Okay. And under the minister, uh, Paul Poik. Yeah. And under the health court, as we know, housing is a major factor for the well-being of, uh, of individuals, the stabilization of families and other um, aspects of, uh, of a good, healthy life. And so I wrote the, the former minister back uh, last year in 2022 to have these units, and there was no action taken. And then I mentioned the email there, but the significant capital repairs that the Newfoundland Arbor Housing just sent out um, a little while ago. Last night I heard that Paul Pike in an interview with the minister uh, state the, uh, they applied for federal funding under the Rapid Housing Initiative for cost-shared uh, footage redevelopment, and the funding was uh, rejected by the federal government. Um, as strange um, because we, we hear the federal government out talking that, that one of their big priorities now is housing, but this application um, um, has been uh, denied. I, I Yesterday I wrote to Minister uh, um, Goody Hutchings to find out why and uh, how can this happen uh, when there's such a need in her own riding in, in Cornerbrook. I haven't got a response to that yet. And and the minister also uh, last night said the, the government is committed to this project. And my point here today is that the minister states that there's a crisis here, and these are very important units. If the federal government refused the cost share in the programs, I'm asking the minister, Minister Pike, to go to Treasury Board and obtain the funding to do this development. Now, what the minister said last night, they're going to tear down these here because they are three and four bedroom apartments and the demographics now need one and two. That's fine. And they're older buildings and they're looking to to put in new buildings, one and two bedroom apartments. Um, That's more suitable to the people who are applying these days with a smaller family. And right now there's no money. So the minister also stated last night, Minister Pike stated last night, shovels are ready to be put the ground. So it is a priority for government. When he's saying the shovels are ready, we're just waiting for it. The demand is urgent. We're just trying to get federal government. Federal federal government refused it. So I'm calling upon the government today. You know there's an urgent crisis for housing in Cornerbrook. You know you have an area that you can do. You know you have 50% of the funds. You know you're subsidizing and paying for people living in a hotel in Cornerbrook. You know uh, through through the minister's department, people are living in tents this summer, and now they're out trying to couch surf to try to find a place for the winter. 
So I'm calling upon the government. There's a way that the minister can go to the Treasury Board to seek the additional funding for the necessary redevelopment or the the construction of the new units, which he said will happen. And I can tell the minister here now, I'll be the first one to, plot, to be out applauding it. It's a crisis. It has to be done. I know the people who are looking for housing. We get called every day. I know many people who are living at the hotel in Cornerbrook who can't get a place. So I'm calling upon the government these are the less fortunate that we need to help. And I'm calling up on the government now. You got 50%. Go to Treasury Board. Let's, let's get this done and let's help the people who, who, who are most vulnerable right Eddie, now. do we happen to know how many units are boarded up that could be renovated and ready to go again? Because that's been an issue. I hear stories come from Labrador, Cornerbrook, even around this area. There's, you know, not necessarily all new construction required. Maybe some of the older units, if appropriate, if applicable, can be fixed up and reopened. Uh, in that area, there's 32 alone. 32. 32 alone. Now, what the minister said last night, uh, they're older, uh, so what they might do is uh, is tear them down and put in new, smaller, more efficient ones and make them one and two bedroom apartments instead of the right now three and four bedroom apartments. And and there's 34 just in one area. Now, I know the people at Newfoundland Labrador Housing, they bring me around and show me more units that could be opened up. But in this area alone that applied for the funding, there's 32 units. There could be 32 families in Cornerbrook right now could be moved in those apartments, which done, uh, when done. And and ju- just on a personal note, uh, Penny, I want to give a little shout-out to the to the staff at Newfoundland Arbor Housing in Cornerbrook. They are excellent to deal with. They are trying their best. They know that there's a shortage, but they are trying their best to help every individual on a priority basis as it comes in. And we work well with them, but this is, is a ministerial decision that has to go to Treasury Board that this government has to say, we have a crisis in Cornerbrook. We have a we have a housing crisis. Here's an option to get a fix. So I'm calling up on them. Please get this done so we can get the social development of okay. these houses. Uh, uh, now we're waiting for the newly constructed Western Memorial Hospital to open. Do you have any update, Eddie, on the cataract backlog before I get to the news? Uh, the, the last I heard on the cataracts that they, they were approved uh, to, to get rid of the backlog and there was 580 year on a go-forward basis. Now, from my understanding, there's supposed to be meetings uh, with the three um, uh, surgeons who have private clinics with the Department of Health on a few issues. I'm not sure what they are, but from my understanding that the government did give 500 to give rid of the backlog, and from my understanding from the minister was that these 500 will be going on a go-forward basis, and if that's correct, there should not be a backlog in Western Newfoundland again for cataract surgery. Appreciate the time, Eddie. Eddie, thank you very much for letting me bring this um, a very important topic. Minister Poik, I'll be sitting in the front seat applauding you and the government if this announcement is made and the project goes ahead. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Eddie. All the best. I said, George, independent member, Humber Bay of Islands. And, you know, this is a scoop coming from Juanita Mercer at the Telegram. We have now found out, or she found out, I didn't find out anything. Juanita found out that, you know, we talked about recruiting nurses in India and doctors in Ireland and all the rest of it. Now, apparently, we've got staff sent to Southeast Asia 
in an effort to recruit early childhood educators. I wonder, does it have with a target attached to it? If we get 30 or 100 or whatever, then it's been a successful uh, approach or a successful policy or whatever the recruitment tool. You know, add to it, the daycare conversation was all the rage there for a while. Now, I know a lot of families are still on wait lists and struggling to find spots. You wonder whether or not some of the new recruitment and retention numbers that government has out there, about $2,500 for once you become certified through the Association of Early Childhood Educators of NL, and then there's educators also uh, receive $2,500 more when they recertify themselves with the association three years later, and another $2,500 three years after that. $2,500 over three years is like $60-odd a month, but it's real money. Is that going to work? But of course, now we know staff are in Southeast Asia recruiting early childhood educators. All right, uh, time for the news. When we come back, opportunity for you to join us live on the show to switch it up with a new topic, elaborate on what you've heard. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break for the news, and then we're coming back. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, questions via email regarding Bill C-49, which is amendments to the accords between Canada and Nova Scotia, Canada and Newfoundland and Labrador, about the potential to create the regulatory regime and to allow for offshore wind to be projects that come to pass. So there's no offshore wind in the country at this moment in time. There is a $1 billion proposal that's been announced in Halifax off the eastern shore of Nova Scotia that wasn't in an effort to deflect from the onshore wind because we've had many conversations about it, including with some of the proponents for the wind to hydrogen to ammonia. And then you talk about what it would be for the numbers of uh, hectares of land, far less than the 1.7 million hectares that were potentially going to be part of uh, applications for crown lands. But then you add in this particular story, and we can take that on if you're interested. So the Nature Conservancy of Canada, we talk about protected lands. We know that they have now just bought 233 hectares of intact boreal forest in the Salmonier River Nature Reserve. So that brings the total that they have there for protected land to 410 hectares. It was a blind bid on the Roman Catholic assets that were being sold right throughout the province in an effort to compensate the victims at Mount, from Mount Cashel. So when you talk about that versus what might be some pretty significant footprint for these wind projects. And that's not a, to say that they're good, bad, or people are in, indifferent to them, but there is absolutely a fair swath of land that will be consumed by these projects. I think World Energy GH2, their entirety of three phases is like 107,000 hectares compared to Exploits Valley, which is uh, closer to 30,000 hectares. So the implication of the footprint and or the water usage, absolutely up for conversation. But when you add in things like protected lands, remember when the WERAC report came out? And, of course, only recommendations. They have no authority to establish or to, to determine that this piece of land is now protected. It simply goes to the cabinet for decision-making. I think there were some 30 recommendations on it. There was some pretty furious backlash aimed at WERAC for the report that they produced. That was years in the making and years overdue. But it wouldn't protected land. The goal is, whether it be waterways or on land, is that there's a hope to see 30% of the country's land protected. I mean, we know how big and how expansive the country is, but at this moment in time, given any of the protections that are currently in place, there's only about, on the quest, on the path to 30% of protected lands across the country by 2030, at this point in this province, 6%. 
you know, I think we kind of lose sight of just how big the province is. In Labrador alone, you could fit the entirety of the United Kingdom in Labrador and have plenty of space left over. The island of Newfoundland is the 14th largest island in the world. So we've got the opportunity. You look at the, the, the maps where you see uh, population density, what have you. It's mostly along all the coasts. There's huge swaths of, sp especially central parts of the island, that are not being not populated. Now there is some commercial and industrial opportunities and activities that are currently taking place there, but it's not. You know, we're nowhere near the protected land issue that we need to be. So whether or not you want to tie that into these wind, hydrogen, ammonia applications, and of course when we mention the fact that the premier is in Alberta trying to lure people or woo people to come either home to the province and or to uh, make Newfoundland and Labrador their new home. It's one thing, again, to talk about the emotions that expats are, maybe most of them, longing for a day where they can have a similar lifestyle to what they're enjoying in, in Alberta to bring it home here. The Premier's talking about economic opportunities here, whether it be for building trades and or these alternative forms of energy projects, and some of them are absolutely going to happen if you just hear what the government says themselves because they've actually used green energy as a potential for a job upon return. Then I also mentioned the fact this morning that there might be opportunity, further opportunity, in the provinces offshore. So when Equinor said they're shelving Bay to North for three years, it's really a remarkable change in tune coming from them and the presentation made at the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary. It pretty much says they have every intention of building it. Now, to restructure the financing, the price tag is every bit of $16 billion, of which they own a 60% stake. BP PLC owns the other 40%, so they're trying to sell some of their equity you know, cash flow to see if this project is going to go ahead. And then here's the story where, again, you know, sometimes we talk about the politics of the stories versus the policy, whether or not it's good, bad, or we should be concerned, or any additional questions to be asked. But this is about Canada's loan of $3 billion in an export development deal with the country of Romania to build new nuclear reactors in that Eastern European country. You know, the immediate reaction is, why not spend that money here for building nuclear reactors here? There's ongoing conversations, Ontario and Saskatchewan, talking about building small nuclear capacity. You know, it scares some people off because you think of Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and what have you, but it's very safe, very efficient, and very cost-effective. The deal here between Canada and Romania is not the first time this has actually happened. There's can-do reactors that have built, been built in Romania over the years. Let's see if I can find the dates for when they first came to pass. Uh, da -da 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 -da. So uh, since 1996 and then again in 2007, so the trick here is that the $3 billion that we're lending them, they use the $3 billion to buy uh, supplies and services from Canadian companies. So this is an investment in energy security. seems to make sense to me. The two examples that we uh, mentioned back in 2007 and 1996 were the exact same thing, the exact same relationship uh, took place between Canada and Romania. The monies were paid back. So on top of the money being repaid, they used the money to spend in Canada for supplies and services and technology and research and development. So it's being poo-pooed in many corners, of course. But if history repeats itself, it was successful twice already. They didn't default on any of the loan. They used our intelligence, our research, our development, our supplies, our services. So $3 billion loaned out that they spend here and repaid the money like they have in the past. Seems to me that might be a pretty wise idea, and not because it's liberals or Tories or anything else, but if it's worked in the past under different labels of government, then maybe, just maybe, it can work again. Just to reiterate, and this is a scoop coming from Juanita Mercer at the Telegram, because when we talked with John, the most recent John that we had on,
about measurables and the metrics to gauge whether or not we're successful on anything. So again, we'll ask the question about how do we measure success with the Towards Recovery Report? How do we measure success with the recruitment efforts for doctors in Ireland or nurses in India? And now we know that their staff from the province are in Southeast Asia trying to recruit early childhood educators. How do we know whether or not it's been a worthwhile effort? You know, what's the number that we're hoping to attract and hoping to secure? Same thing, I think, can be associated with daycare updates. You can tell me the headline grabbers of 8,300 regulated spots at $10 a day and all the moves in with early childhood educators' incentives being put forward, but how do we measure success? As we're adding spaces, we're losing spaces. Advocates inside the early childhood education and daycare world are saying we're only about 250 net additional spaces since 2019. So it doesn't really seem, and you know, if we're not told what the demand is, then it's hard to say whether or not we're on the right track. I will apply that same application, that same thought process to early childhood educators and early, recru uh, pardon me, recruitment efforts in Southeast Asia. Okay, let's check in on the Twitter. That was good work by one Ada Mercer there. All right, we're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there, offer suggestions on what you hear or comments on what people are saying. Also, we're taking your emails. It's openline at VOCM.com. Uh, when we come back, let's wrap up the show with a conversation with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Dave is just popping a call in the queue for me. See some updated information coming from Ottawa today about the Liberal government. Now, we have booked some time with economist and professor at the University of Calgary, Trevor Tome, for tomorrow. He has an analysis of the approach the government's taking with summoning the five CEOs of the big five grocery retailers about stabilizing prices. He thought uh, from the first glance it was a bad idea. Upon further analysis, he thinks it's a terrible idea. So we'll get an update from uh, Mr. To uh, Dr. Tome tomorrow. Also, the Liberals now are proposing change to the Competition Act because the Competition Board did some pretty good work when they looked at the landscape of grocery, uh, the retailers, manufacturers, distributors. So we'll see what that entails when I get a chance to read it after the show. Okay, let's go to line number five and say good morning to the Executive Director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Alliance for the Control of Tobacco. That's Kevin Cody. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Hello, Teddy. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for making time. Thank you. So we're told now that uh, come next Wednesday, the 27th of the month, uh, all smoking and vaping will be banned on government property, including in the vehicles that are parked in the parking lots. Were you part of that consultation? Um, I'm part of it in the sense that we've uh, we've advocated for government to to move forward on uh, perimeter bans or property uh, policy. Uh, to keep in line with what the school districts are trying to do and the health boards are trying to do, and even some local businesses are trying to do on their own. So uh, we've certainly called on, on them to take a serious look at this over the last couple of years. Uh, we were a little surprised to hear it uh, this week, but, uh, you know, uh, we were we were certainly looking for it, and we've... We've often talked about it, so uh, I guess not not totally surprised, but uh, just slightly. I guess there will always be questions about how it gets enforced, because it's one thing that you have security on staff at the Confederation Building, and at the Health Sciences, and at St. Clair's, but I wonder who's going to be charged with enforcing it on, like, say, for instance, school property, because it's all the visitors, all the students, all the teachers, administrators, so it's going to be a, a bit of a tangle. So we've been having some conversations here about well-being week, uh, for starters, what was your reaction to the announcement of it? Because it didn't come with a whole lot of additional details of supports or programs or policies. It's more conceptual. What was your thoughts when you heard it announced? 
Yeah, you're, I agree with you on that, that we, we don't have any uh, details in terms of, uh, you know, their, their plan to, uh, to, say, help people or to enforce uh, the property policy. Uh, and I can only... I can only believe and hope that the government has thought this through and has some something in mind. But uh, uh, like you, I guess we're waiting to see what the what the thoughts are there. But I still think it's a good move. Uh, it's important that that we send messages all the time that that smoking is just not a part of of healthy living. Uh, vaping, similarly. And we have a major problem with vaping with the young people uh, in particular, which is just what the industry, the tobacco industry loves, of course, because uh, they will be addicted and they're becoming addicted daily. And they will continue to vape and maybe even move over to regular tobacco smoke, uh, smoking. So, you know, we have to get the messages out there every way possible. And policies like this certainly will help. I just hope that... Uh, like you and your listeners, I'm sure, that government can make it work. There were so many changes added to the tobacco industry. You know, we took away the colored packages and added the warnings, whether it be in text and or pictures. We put them behind concealed walls so they weren't on full display for all to see. So do you think there's any move afoot to do the same with the vapes? Because they're very attractive looking, they're colorful and have interesting shapes and sizes. And of course, the youth find them to be a good alternative. Now, vaping can be a helpful tool for someone to try to quit smoking as an adult, but that's not how the youth are using them. So do you think there's any move afoot to take similar measures with the vaping products? I certainly hope so, Patty. Uh, again, we've uh, we've raised it with uh, our government, but but we're more interested in what the federal government is going to do on this one because they've indicated that they were going to take some steps, but those steps are, are very slowly moving. Uh, I mean, we we've just got to uh, face the fact that the vaping. Uh, situation is going down the same road that the uh, tobacco went down and people get addicted and then it's somewhat too late because it's not an easy addiction to uh, to get get clear of get rid of uh, we're hoping that the federal government and and our provincial government working together will uh, you know ban those flavors that are attractive to young people but I agree with you and you've made the, a solid point there vaping may be able to help some people cut down reduce the tobacco smoke that they've been so used to and if that's the case then that's that's probably a good choice but certainly uh it still doesn't rate as a healthy choice but you know a good choice maybe but with young people we just uh, we just can't can't swallow it at all i mean we're hearing from teachers down in grade five and six we need help there's a vaping problem we're currently putting together and about to release a, a pretty substantial package for the teachers, all teachers across the province, that they can use as they see fit and educate both you know, their students and hopefully their parents through the students about how dangerous this vaping thing is. And, you know, it shouldn't be just seen as a, a bit of fun and a, a bit of, uh, you know, acting cool or whatever it is that's going through the young people's minds. But we have a major issue there, and we hope that government, you know, but the feds are moving very slowly. 
they're being pushed by different. There's every day. There's a there's a national group uh, in another province somewhere uh, pushing them to move, but not there yet. And we're asking our government to take a look at it as uh, as some other provincial governments are doing, and see what they can do. But slow moving. Kevin, last one for you. So we hear from your association about just how many people are smoking in the province and the amount of tobacco sold, and that's easy to come up with that number. But now we've heard from the convenience store uh, industry saying that its illegal contraband is so prevalent here. I wasn't aware of how big it was. Between B.C., Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador since 2019, $2.4 billion in lost tax revenue. So how do you factor that into the legal sales versus what we're learning now about contraband? Yeah, that that becomes a difficult task to factor that in, uh, Patty. But uh, you know, I've heard that news now in the last. Uh, that's been talked about in the last couple of weeks, and uh, people are noticing it that the contraband is on the move, uh, seemingly uh, on the increase. I don't have an answer for how we deal with it, except that we have to hope that law enforcement can nip it in the bud, type of thing. But. It's uh, it's a real concern because, uh, you know, again, if people can get the cheaper tobacco products, they're certainly not going to be encouraged to uh, to quit. I so, really, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Kevin. No, no, no. So there, there, there needs to be some effort made there to deal with that. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take Bye. care, Kevin. Bye-bye. Kevin Cody, Executive Director, NL Alliance for uh, Control of Tobacco. Final word goes to line number one. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'd like to send out the condolence to uh, Dr. Gill's family, and uh, I wish him well. Tell us about Dr. Gill. I'm not familiar with what we're talking about. I apologize. Uh, he's, uh, he was at the health signs, and he passed away uh, a few days ago. He was 66. And he was my doctor in 2015. And I only see him, I was into the health science on the 23rd, and I was coming down to the hallway, and I see him, and I said, my God, I said, I spoke to him, and he said hello to me. I couldn't believe that he was gone. What type of doctor was... He doctor. Uh, what kind of doctor, sorry? Well, he, I think he... I don't know, Auntie B, this lady was on, she said he born her baby, but I, I had I, I had him from my bladder, right? Okay. And a lot of my friends and my sister, she had him too, right? He was a very good doctor. Well, I can hear the sadness in your voice, and to his friends and his family and his patients, our condolences. And I appreciate you letting me know about it this morning, Elizabeth. Yes. You have a good day, Patty. You too. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, there you go. All right, interesting show today. We got it off to a fine star with a gentleman named John talking about, you know, the type of curriculum in the schools, and it, it was really quite insightful. But what some people have re- referenced back to it and said, you know, we can't let parents off the hook. But the intention is not to let parents off the hook. When we're talking about what goes on at school, I guess it's basically what goes on at school. You know, everything starts at home. Much of what, who we are, what we're like, will be formed by our parents, by our family surroundings, by our community, by our circle of friends, and yes, in the school. So John was a good call to kick it off, and I'm sure you're going to be that 
Uh, insightful, thoughtful caller to kick us off tomorrow morning. Well, we will indeed pick up this conversation right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.